0: Well, I think it's very appropriate that, as a church, we should honor and celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's life and the holiday. The scriptures teach us that there's blessing whenever we obey the authorities above us, especially if they're not contradicting the laws of God. And on November 2nd, 1983, President Reagan made January 15th the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, a national holiday. Found it very interesting. We recently went to the Reagan Library, but uh, when he signed it into law, this is what President Reagan wrote. He said, Let us not only recall Dr. King, but rededicate ourselves to the commandments he believed in and sought to live every day. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I just have to believe that all of us, if all of us, young and old, Republicans and Democrats, do all we can to live up to those commandments, then we will see the day when Dr. King's dream comes true, and in his words, all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. I pray that on this holiday, we will celebrate his life and learn from his life and put these things into action. I think it's also appropriate in Hebrews 11, the famous Hall of Fame chapter, the Faith Hall of Fame, we're encouraged to remember those that have gone before us who lived lives of faith. Also in Romans thirteen seven, it says that, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And there are many things in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life that was honorable that we should emulate and give honor to. Lastly, I think we should be inspired, mentored, and helped by Christian heroes, both from their victories and from their defeats. Years ago, we are at a church, and we had established a mission mentoring ministry for people going overseas, and we had a return missionary named Greg Holden from the Philippines, and one day he was talking, and as he was speaking, he said something about, yes, in that area I was really mentored by Hudson Taylor, and I had studied Hudson Taylor's life and knew that, hey, wait a minute, he lived in the late 1800s. How, how did, what do you mean he mentored you? And so I asked him about that, and he also had studied his life. And had, had studied it so intensely that he felt like it was as if the person of Hudson Taylor had mentored him and had taught him, had shown him and given him wisdom in overcoming uh, different trials that he faced. And I think this is so important, that we have uh, heroes that, men- that mentor us and serve as examples for us, inspire us. And I think and sometimes it's an area that we've not always done great as, as Christians, as Christian parents. Remember when I used to uh, travel with Caleb Project giving mission presentations? Often would ask people, and maybe I'll ask today, um, does anybody know who the first two American missionaries were? Raise your hand if you know. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Nobody knows who our first missionaries are, but we know famous baseball players and athletes. Uh, it was Adoniram and Nancy Judson that went to Burma. And, um, but often it makes me wonder, Are we get, who are the heroes we're setting before our children and before us that are inspiring our lives? So it is right that we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and that we have heroes to follow. First, I want to just quickly work through some of the key events in his life. The holiday is on January 15th, celebrating the day he was born in 1929. He was born and named Michael King. King. At age three, his name was changed to Martin Luther King Jr. His father and his grandfather were both Baptist ministers. And his uh, father, Martin Luther King Jr., was also born with the name Michael King. But he had the opportunity to go to a Baptist Global Alliance in Germany. And while he was there, he for the first time, he learned about Martin Luther. And he was so inspired that he came back and changed his name and his son's name to Martin Luther King. It's interesting, too, that this October 31st will, will be 500 years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, and began what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. That was 500 years ago this coming October, and I believe we'll be in some form celebrating that this year as well. An interesting thing about Martin Luther King was a junior was that he suffered depression throughout much of his life. They said in his adolescent years he felt a lot of resentment toward whites, due to the racial humiliation that he, his family, and the other African-Americans around him had to endure there in the South as he grew up uh, in, in the South. Uh, one time during his junior year, from a young age, he was a great orator. He, his junior year of high school, he won an oratory contest, and on the way back uh, home, uh, on the bus the seats got filled up and so uh, a white man asked him and his or uh, two white men asked him and his teacher to give up their seats so that they could sit down and initially he refused until his teacher told him that you have to do it or you'll be breaking the law and so he gave up his seat but he later said that that was the maddest he'd ever been in his whole life he also had seen his father forced to or that his father would sometimes leave a a shoe store because they would say, oh, if you want service, you're going to have to go to the back of the store. Uh, And they had all the Jim Crow laws that uh, he witnessed during that time. He was an exceptional student. Uh, At age 15, he passed an exam and entered college at age 15. Morehouse College, uh, an outstanding African-American college in the South. At 19, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology. At 22, he graduated from Crozer Theological Seminary with a bachelor of divinity in theology. When he was 24, he married his wife, Coretta Scott. She was 26 and he was 24. And the following year, he was called as a pastor for the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. One interesting thing, while he was at... Um, Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania uh, he fell in love with uh, one of the cafeteria workers daughter a cafeteria worker was from had just come from Germany, and he fell in love with her and sh- she was a white girl and As he wrote home to his parents his his parents said, "You cannot marry a white girl'll be it 'll be so offensive to many blacks, so many whites it 'll cause so much animosity." You won't be able to be hired as a pastor if you do this. But he was truly in love with her. But he said eventually because it caused his mother so much pain that he broke off his relationship uh, with this woman. But one trusted friend said they felt that he never completely got over it. And that related. some believe that relates to some of the depression that he experienced through much of his life. Uh, At age 26, he got his Ph.D. in systematic theology from Boston University. Uh, While he was pastoring there in Montgomery, Alabama, um, the same year that he began, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, Actually, it's interesting, several months before that, a 15-year-old black African-American girl refused to give up her seat But she was young and an unwed single mother, and so they felt that wasn't the best case to bring uh, to court. So later, when uh, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat that day because she said she was, one, physically tired and just didn't want to give it up, and secondly, that she was tired of the unjust laws. This started the Montgomery bus boycott because blacks were required to go to the back of the bus and to give up their seats for whites. And so they said, if that's the condition, Martin Luther King and his colleagues said, well, we'll, we won't use the buses at all, and they'll lose more than 50% of their customers. But they continued on for 385 days at great cost, and many of the people made their lives very difficult. They'd have to get up so early to get to work. And there was great tension, such great tension that Martin Luther King Jr.'s home was bombed during that time. But in the end, after 385 difficult days, a United States district court ruling ended racial segregation on all Montgomery buses. And because of that, very quickly, Martin Luther King Jr. rose to prominence as the most nationally recognized figure in the civil rights movement. Very quickly, they formed the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, And he soon, he became the first uh, director of it. And they were targeting to bring uh, equality uh, and end segregation, and segregation practices all throughout the South. Interestingly, he wrote a book called Stride for Freedom in 1958. And one day, while he was signing it, he was stabbed in the chest by a woman who, a black woman, who was mentally ill but who had heard rumor after rumor that Martin Luther King was a communist. And it irritated her so much that she took a letter opener and stabbed him in the chest. The knife blade, they said, was just a few millimeters from his heart. And he nearly died. So from early on, he faced a great amount of opposition. In 1962, uh, he organized protests and marches, all of them nonviolent, which he was known for. He called it militant nonviolence, meaning persistent nonviolence. Some like to call it um, assertive nonviolence. But because of that, he was put in jail a couple of times, the first time for a few days, and then they said a man of his reputation they wanted to let out, but he said, no, only, I'll only come out if you give us some concessions which they agreed to, and then later re- backtracked on their promises. Then the second time, he was sent to jail uh, as part of these nonviolent protests for 45 days. But again, after three days, he was released. And actually, he was quite frustrated. He said, we have witnessed people being kicked off lunch counter stools. We've witnessed people being ejected from churches. We've witnessed people being thrown into jail. But now, for the first time, we've witnessed people being kicked out of jail. So he felt like he couldn't win for losing. Interestingly, later, he found out that it was the great evangelist, Billy Graham, that paid his bail and enabled him to leave leave jail. But even after one year of all their marches and protesters there, they experienced little success and withdrew. And we see that in his life. He, everything that he did didn't have success. He had a n- number of failures, but he persevered. And I hope as you see that, that that will speak to your own heart, that some of you may say, well, how can I learn from a man like Martin Luther King Jr.? I'm I'm not going to lead some civil rights movement. I am no great leader in this country. I'm just little old me. Uh, But God loves the little old me, and he wants to work in each of our lives. I was impressed by that yesterday, just as we had the youth participate in the time of solitude and silence, that God clearly and with impact spoke to them just like he speaks to us. He, he cares about each one of us and he wants to work in each of our lives. He wants to conform each of us to the image of Jesus Christ and to use us to bring him pleasure and to build his kingdom. In 1963, they took the movement Uh, to battle against racial segregation in Birmingham through nonviolent protests. They were um, rallying against the racial segregation and economic injustice. At one point, one of his colleagues said they had just been um, adults that they'd been bringing in for these marches, and sometimes the police uh, were known for using water hoses to squirt them, and even the use of the the police dogs but his colleague said, no, we, I think we should use children in the movement as well. And so they first began, one of the first times they began allowing children to march with them was one of the times when um, the police chief in Birmingham, Eugene Bull Connor, uh, released some of the dogs, and the dogs were biting the children as well as the adults. The fire hoses were squirted on the children as well as adults. And that really captured the attention of the media and those images played all throughout America. And though the dogs were biting them, though the police were using their sticks to beat the protesters, they remained nonviolent, following the principles of Christ and not returning evil for evil, but returning good for evil. And this was a great thing in Martin Luther King's life is that He didn't just read the Bible and study the Bible as theology, he put it into practice. And by doing so, showed that the teachings of Christ are true and powerful. And because of the shocking footage, many white Americans began to support the movement and it consolidated the support of African Americans behind the movement. That led then to 1963, the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King gave his amazing I Have a Dream speech at just age 32. That movement, there was 250,000 people that showed up, which at the time was the biggest crowd that had ever gathered at the Washington Mall. And he continued to organize and lead marches throughout the United States, and this led in 1964 to the passage of the Civil Rights Act, where black right to vote, desegregation, labor rights, and other basic civil rights were granted to African Americans. And in 1964, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. In 1965 was the famous Selma marches from Selma to Montgomery asking for voting rights. And the The first day that they attempted it, Martin Luther King himself was not present, but as they began their march, um, the dogs were let go on the protesters, the police used their sticks, they were on horseback with whips, and uh, trampled the marchers. It was known as Bloody Sunday, but again, um, they responded nonviolently, they didn't fight back. And because of that, the hearts of America felt sympathy toward them, and they gained support, and that led to the 1965 Voting Act's right. Prior to that, there were rules like uh, in uh, Selma, there were no blacks that were registered to vote, but to be able to register to vote, you had to get the signature of someone who was registered to vote. And So with no blacks, who's going to sign the paper? No whites were willing to do it. There were only certain days they were allowed in the courthouse, uh, and I'd encourage you to, to watch the movie Selma. That shows in great details uh, the difficulties that, that they faced. In 1966, they took and had initiatives in, in Chicago against poverty and against the segregated housing there. They um, actually had black couples and white couples with the same number of kids uh, go and try to rent the same housing. And time after time, uh, the blacks uh, were, not to have, were not allowed to use the housing, and the whites were picked for it. So the, back, the blacks were forced to live in the slums of Chicago. And actually, it was a very difficult time again for Martin Luther King. After having some great successes and some failures, when they moved to Chicago, there was so little hope there that even when he went out and spoke, black youth were denouncing him and throwing things at him. Um, and they were overwhelmed by the lack of hope in the slums of Chicago. But he and his best friend, Ralph, Ralph Abernathy, they went and rented a, a, a building or a ap- small apartment in the slums. They both had lived a middle class life and they wanted to identify with the people and experience like they experienced life and to walk in their shoes. And during those years, 1966 to 1968, Martin Luther King expanded his concern not just for civil rights, not just in overcoming segregation, not just in um, overcoming poverty, but he also began to speak out against the war in Vietnam. And that was very unpopular at the time. Um, They lost a, a number of supporters by him doing that. A lot of people accused him and said, why are you mixing civil rights and national policy? You're watering down our message. You're, you're sending our movement in different directions. But to him, they were one and the same. He said, how can I go into the streets? As I go into the streets of Chicago and there's, there's blacks that are so upset they're throwing Molotov, Molotov cocktails and using violence because of the violence that's been used against them. And when I talk to them about Christ's nonviolent methods and the, method, the nonviolent assertive methods that they were using, they wouldn't listen. And they would say, Well, then why is our country doing such violence in Vietnam? And they realized these were intertwined. And he began to speak out. He began to ask the government, He said, You've made so many promises to us for money for the inner cities, but that money's dried up ever since the Vietnam War started. He said, We talk about unity. But the most unity that we experience is blacks and whites killing people together. They're unified in killing people together in Vietnam. But when they come back to America, they, they don't even live, they can't even live on the same block. How just is that? He said black soldiers are fighting for, for freedom in Asia for people, and yet they don't even have those freedoms in their own home country. So he spoke out. He was a clarion call for justice. One of my favorite quotes, he once said, "Justice, injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere. And he was a prophet. He, he had God's words for that moment in history to speak the truth of what was going on, even though it was at great cost to himself. And then in 1968, on April 4th, he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, His last words on the balcony were spoken to a musician, Ben Branch, who was scheduled to perform that night at the event King was to preach at. And he said to him, He said, Ben, make sure you play. Take my hand, precious Lord, in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty his last words. When they did the autopsy of Martin Luther King, they revealed that although he was only 39 years old, he had the heart of a 60-year-old, which many attributed to the years of 13 years of stress in the civil rights movement. He was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Congressional Gold Medal. Many cities and states began... uh, declaring a Martin Luther King Day starting in 1971, but it wasn't until finally in 1986 that a Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday was established. Hundreds of streets throughout the U.S. have been renamed in his honor in many cities, including our own Los Angeles. And then in 2011, the Martin Luther King Memorial was set up on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., So very briefly, those are some of the events of his short life, his 39 years. If he was alive today, he would be 88 years old. But I want us to look now at what are some of the lessons that we, the little people, can learn from such a huge figure as Dr. Martin Luther King. One is that he believed that Christianity and the Word of God should impact the world shouldn't be just limited to the walls of the church. He showed what it looked like to lay down one's life for God. He communicated like Jesus. He knew that life was a spiritual battle, and so he boldly stood for the truth and persevered through failure and intense opposition. And his life showed that every Christian is in vital need of genuine personal accountability. Let's look at these together. First, his belief in the Word of God. As I said before, he got his PhD in systematic theology. He researched and studied the Bible, but thank the Lord, he did more than that. He applied it. There's a verse that says something about that uh, if we put the if we obey the Lord's will, we'll know that His words are true. And Martin Luther King's life, by putting these principles into action, demonstrated yes. To many people, yes, the word of God, the ways of God are true. Let's look at this verse in Romans 12 that's already been read. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. This is... Passage that were taught to the protesters that this was their method, not to repay evil for evil, not to take a, a revenge on the whites, though there was so, such a long history of evil, done, evil deeds done to the blacks throughout the slavery period, and up to that day, through the Jim Crow laws. On the contrary, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the message they lived out in the civil rights movement under Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They would not return evil for evil, but instead good for evil. And it says in this verse, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is a reference to uh, some researchers found that there was a habit in Egypt where those that were repenting of their sins, repenting of what they had done wrong, would have a, hold a pan of hot coals over their heads, symbolizing they were repenting for their actions. So in other words, this passage is saying, if you do this, if you return good for evil, if you leave revenge to the Lord, Those that are against you will repent of their actions. And this is the very thing that happened. When the police dogs were let go and were biting children and adults, they didn't fight back. When the fire hoses were sprayed at the people, when the men on horseback with whips were whipping the protesters, They didn't fight back. And because of this, burning coals were heaped on the heads of many people. And they changed their attitudes about the civil rights movement. They changed their attitudes about the African Americans. And God's word once again was proved right. Another interesting thing about Dr. Martin Luther King was his impact that he had on the African-American church. One African-American pastor, Dr. Ralph West, said this. He said, Dr. King did not privatize Christianity. He certainly called people to personal faith in Christ, but he also saw the work of Christ as more than personal salvation. He proclaimed that the work of Christ in the life of the individual is to change society, institutionally, politically, and socially. He believed Christianity was not limited to the domain of the local church. The influence of Christianity was to be seen and felt in the public square. His cry for social justice opened the evangelical world to reflect on all public issues of impact. Before Dr. King, we African-American pastors focused on saving souls. After Dr. Martin Luther King we also focused on saving the world we live in. That reminds me of the disciples when they asked Jesus, that Jesus teach us how to pray. And his response was, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. He taught them, pray that, God's kingdom would come to earth and that his, king, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. One Christian leader said, another way to say that is, God's desire is we take the, the world the way that it is and we make it the way that God wants it to be. That we change the world from the way that it is to the way that God wants it to be. In other words, we bring his kingdom We bring his will to be done on earth. Where there is injustice, his people are to help bring justice. So Dr. Martin Luther King said, the influence of Christianity must go beyond the walls of the church and should impact every part of our life and society as well. So I ask you, what about your faith? Does it, go beyond the walls of this church? Does your faith impact beyond the walls of your home? Is it making a difference in society? As you go to the sporting events with your children, or as you go to work, is the message of Christ making an impact there? Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., showed us a great example of how that should happen. How we see God's kingdom and his will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Also, he clearly showed us what it looks like to lay down one's life for God. He spoke very interesting just after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He had been watching this on TV and he spoke to his wife Coretta and said, This is what is going to happen to me also. I keep telling you, this is a sick society. So long before, in 1963, five years before he died, he had a premonition that he also would be assassinated. Interestingly, the night before he was assassinated, he was speaking at a church in Memphis, and he said these words, He said, and then I got to Memphis and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind like anybody. I would love, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountainside, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So he knew it even the night before he gave his life or he, before he was assassinated. So he had settled that issue long before, that his life was not his own. He had given it to God to use however he would. Several years ago in our organization, there were four career missionaries that worked at a hospital in Jordan that were killed by a disgruntled Muslim. All four of these had served many years at that hospital and were known for their warmth and their love and their great service to the community. And when they died, some had said what a tragedy it was that their lives were taken from them so early in their lives. But Dr. Jerry Rankin, the president of the International Mission Board, when he spoke at their funerals, he reiterated that, no, this is wrong. Their lives were not taken. He said their lives were offered. Their lives were given to God long before that. They were not taken from them. They were lives offered. They were lives given. So let me ask each of us, Have we offered our lives to God? Have we given our lives to Him to use however He would so that if we were to die, it would be said of us, His life, her life was given to God. It was not taken. Let us follow His example in that regard. And give our lives wholeheartedly to the Lord, however, He would use us. Thirdly, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I believe, communicated like Jesus. I'm not saying that Jesus spoke with a Southern accent and called for amens when He preached, or that had a Southern cadence when he taught. But I believe there are two primary things when Jesus taught that uh, exemplified his teaching. And that is that whatever he taught was memorable and was impactful. And I believe the same is so true of Dr. Martin Luther King's teaching. The cadence, the use of repetition, the use of vivid imagery, the use of word pictures and his bold Speaking of the unadulterated truth. So resembled our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he also was like the Old Testament prophets. Dr. Martin Luther King was often calling out the injustices of society. The things that were wrong. The things that weren't being done correctly. And the displeasure of God toward these things. But just like the Old Testament prophets, he also held out the hope that lay ahead, and never let go of that hope, no matter how dark things got. He often spoke of this cloud of darkness that he felt around him, but he never let it stamp out this hope that he had for society and for people. I want us to watch a video clip now, and it may seem a little unusual in that it's a it's a clip not of him preaching, but I believe we've all been exposed to his preaching. This is a, a fascinating, I, I love this. It's about an 11 minute clip from 1967 when he appeared on The Mike Douglas Show. Um, watch it carefully. I think you'll see a few things. One, you'll see the tension of the host, Michael Douglas, and this singer, famous singer, Tony Martin, as they engage with Dr. Martin Luther King. You can see that. On one hand, they like him and his, or they like him and his ideas, but they, you can see this tension that they don't want to appear as if they're too supportive of what he's doing, this unusual tension. Also, when I see this, I think of several scriptures. One is Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And in Philippians, Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I encourage you to observe the gentleness of Dr. Martin Luther King. It's especially when we contrast this with the kind of discourse that we see in America today, especially about politics and how people dissent and the the angry, hateful tones that seem to be always present now whenever someone disagrees with someone else. And lastly, I think of the youth when we've been sharing the gospel bridge. We've also talked about how in 1 Peter 3.15 it says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those that speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed of their slander. Now here he's not defending his Christian faith, but he's defending his Christian worldview. And watch carefully how he does it with such gentleness and with such respect. You'll see his brilliant mind, his amazing logic, and his consistent and biblical worldview.
1: Tony, our next guest is the the winner of the Nobel Prize for Peace and perhaps the foremost spokesman for uh, the nine non-violent faction uh, in the American Negro civil rights movement. Uh, his recent speeches and sermons urging Negroes not to fight in Vietnam have initiated a verbal argument among prominent Negroes that threatens to split the civil rights movement wide open. Would you please welcome a very outstanding and controversial gentleman, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. <clears throat> Dr. King, I ought to put you right in the middle, I wasn't thinking. You've been putting in the middle quite, quite <laughs> often, uh, there, haven't you? That's very right. Dr. King, uh, why did you decide to urge Negroes not to fight in Vietnam?
2: Well, I think my view has uh, been a little distorted at that point. I haven't only urged Negroes not to fight. Uh, I feel that the war is so unjust, so abominable, so futile and bloody and costly, but no nobody should be fighting there. I haven't limited my concern to just the American Negro, although I know we are dying in disproportionate numbers there. And uh, we are on the losing end, both there and at home, because as long as the war in Vietnam continues, our social problems will inevitably suffer here at home. Well, don't you think that your remarks have created doubts about the Negro's loyalty to his country? Well, some people may feel that. I don't think our loyalty to the country should be measured by our ability to kill. I think our loyalties to the country should be measured by our ability to lead the nation to higher heights of democracy and to the great
1: dream of justice and humanity. Do you you honestly feel, uh, Dr. King, that the war in Vietnam could be stopped now without harm to this country? Well, there
2: are two ways to deal with it. Uh, one is a unilateral withdrawal. Uh, I don't oppose that because uh, I feel that this is ability. After all, France withdrew unilaterally from Algeria. It withdrew without a military victory,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: this did not lessen France's prestige or influence in the world. If anything, it increased its prestige but in the France is not the power that this country is. Well, I think that's an even greater reason why uh, we should restrain our power. Uh, There's always the danger that any nation will abuse its power, and uh, I think our power must be much more than military power. We don't need to prove to the world or anybody our military power. I think we've got to prove our moral power Do you feel that this nation has abused, uh, as you say, uh, their power? Oh, I certainly do in the the war in Vietnam. I have no doubt about that. I'm not saying that it was done uh, with evil motives in mind. I think we made a huge miscalculation. And when you make a mistake, you ought to confess it. One of the great things about President Kennedy was that he said to the world, to his closest advisors, that he made a mistake in the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. And he said, I never should have listened to the experts. And I think the time has come now for our leaders to say that we've made a grave mistake in Vietnam, and we ought to take the initiative in bringing an end to this conflict, if not through a unilateral withdrawal, at least through a negotiated settlement. And I think there are things that we can do to create the atmosphere for negotiation. Doctor, Mm -hmm. do you believe that your remarks have put a strain on the relations of the civil rights movement? Do you believe so? Well, not, uh, not really. As I said, uh, many people, white and Negro, are deeply opposed to the war in Vietnam. Interestingly enough, when I first spoke out against the war, only 21% of the American people were against it. Both the Gallup and the Harris polls reveal now that the majority of Americans are against the war in Vietnam. Some 48% are now opposed to the war in Vietnam. 10% remain undecided. And you have about 42% who are still in favor. So you have a majority opposed to the war in Vietnam. And I haven't seen the great opposition uh, to my position that uh, so many people would state. The other thing is that a man of conscience can never be a consensus leader. He doesn't take a stand in order to search for consensus. He's ultimately a molder of consensus. And I've always said that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. And I would take this position even if I didn't have the majority of people agreeing with me now. Using your feeling about unilateral and the way France settled, which Mm -hmm. was very well done. They didn't lose face. Apparently, face is the important thing at this time. But not only are we losing face, but it would be better to save lives. We know that. Mm -hmm. Who will be the goat if someone takes upon themselves to end this war and settle it unilaterally? Will there be a constant complaint, what a big waste this one. Will this set a precedent for the United States in the future of defending our inheritance, our independence? Well, I think we have to look at several things here. First, in my mind, peace is much more important than faith. And I think there has to be a transformation here in terms of our thinking uh, and in terms of, of peace. We've got to come to see now that peace must not only be a goal that we talk about and seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. The other thing is this, that even though the mood of the country may not be in line with the unilateral withdrawal now, I think there are things that can be done to bring about a negotiated settlement. Now, there are many people uh, who have talked very closely with the leaders of North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front who tell us if we bring about an unconditional halt in the bombings, this would get talks going. Uh, Our government has refused to do that. And I feel that since we took the initiative in escalating the war in the air and on the land and on the seas, then we have a moral obligation to take the initiative uh, to de-escalate it, and I think we can do that by bringing about a halt to the bombings and our security Do you security think, do you is think involved. that that would do
1: it by halting the bombing? Would that do it? Well, as I would said,
2: I, I can only go by men like you taunt uh, the Russian leaders and many other people who have talked very closely with uh, the leadership of North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front. I think we ought to try it anyway. I think we ought to bring about an unconditional halt uh, to the bombings and we should do that for practical reasons in terms of trying to get talks started, and I think we should do it for moral reasons. They are never going to negotiate as long as we are bombing that territory.
1: How about your relationship with uh, President Johnson? Have you lost favor with uh, Mr. Johnson?
2: Well, I guess the President would have to answer that question. Uh, I have taken a position against the administration's policy, and uh, I would hope that the President means what he says when he... Uh, says that there should always be room for dissent. And we come to a tragic period in our nation when we equate dissent with disloyalty. Uh, I believe firmly uh, that uh, it is necessary to have these moments of dissent in order to challenge something that may be leading the whole nation in the wrong path. Do you care if you have lost favor with Mr. Johnson? Well, that isn't... uh, I guess the most important thing to me, the important thing is that I not lose favor with truth and with what conscience tells me is right and what conscience tells me is just. I'm much more concerned about keeping favor with these principles than keeping favor with a person who may misunderstand the position I take. What will this do to the power of Dr. Martin Luther King at that point? Well, I... I uh, never like to discuss uh, Martin Luther King's influence for fear that that is uh, suggestive of the yeah, uh, modesty. Uh, I'm just trying to do a job, and I think it's a job that has to be done. And I'm not trying to do it merely for myself, or merely for my children, or merely for the Negro, but uh, for America, because I think it's true that if this problem is not solved, uh, the soul of our nation, uh, will be lost. And the only way to redeem the soul of America is to
1: remove or to eradicate racism in all of its dimensions. Dr. King, in the past you've been accused of having communist sympathies, and since your stand has to help the communist cause, uh, aren't you concerned that, those, that these allegations will be revived? Well, they're always uh, revived. I hate that
2: McCarthy or tend to live with us, uh, but I don't really worry about this. Uh, I know my own views Are
1: you a communist? too well.
2: Are you a communist? Absolutely not. I have never been. I am not now and I never will be in terms of the philosophy of communism. I happen to be a, a Baptist preacher and I don't think you find too many Baptist preachers who would be communists. <laughs> I think communism is based on a metaphysical materialism and a kind of ethical relativism and a and a crippling totalitarianism and a denial of certain human freedoms that I consider basic, First Amendment uh, freedoms that I consider so basic, that I could never be a communist or prefer the communist way of life. But I do feel that we've got to recognize the fact that communism is in the world and we're going to either have to have peaceful coexistence or violent
1: co-annihilation. Dr. King, uh, we have certainly... Uh, appreciated your stopping by today. We have enjoyed this visit very much. And thank, thank you, you so and much. A really joy meeting you.
0: Well, that was amazing, wasn't it? To see the insight that he had, the wisdom that he had, and to be able to deliver a dissenting message with such eloquence and grace. The fourth lesson I think we, we see is that M- Dr. Martin Luther King knew that life is a spiritual battle and he boldly stood for truth and persevered through failure and intense opposition. He was opposed on many fronts by whites within the civil rights movement, uh, Stokey Carmichael wanting to use um, violence at times to achieve their aims. He had to fight against that. Then Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. Malcolm X said things like, called the March on Washington, the farce on Washington. He said this about Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, the white man pays Dr. Martin Luther King. The white man subsidizes him so that Dr. Martin Luther King can teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what he means by nonviolence, to be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel beasts that has ever taken a people into captivity, the American white man. Just as Uncle Tom back during the slavery days used to keep Negroes from resisting the bloodhounds or from resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to love their enemy, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or a modern Uncle Tom, a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same things today to keep those Negroes defenseless in the face of attack as Uncle Tom's did back on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the attack of the Ku Klux Klan in those days. And yet, in his comments about Malcolm X, he did it in the same moderated tone, clearly showing where he was misrepresented and speaking out the truth. He was also treated unfairly by the government. The government, for some reason, feared that he was a communist, even as you see on national television, they had to ask, are you a communist or not? J. Edgar Hoover, the leader of the FBI during this time, was convinced of it, and he got John um, Robert Kennedy, then the Attorney General, to approve that the tapping of all of his phone lines and the tapping of the phone lines of all the members of the SL uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Hoover did not believe King when he said that he wasn't a communist. In fact, Hoover said about King that he was the most notorious liar in the country. After King's I Have a Dream speech and the march to Washington, he he described Martin Luther King as the most dangerous and effective Negro leader in the country and alleged that he was knowingly, willingly, and regularly cooperating and taking guidance from the communists. Later, he said no opportunity should be missed to exploit through counterintelligence techniques to the organizational and personal conflicts of the leadership of the groups that Martin Luther King led to ensure the targeted group, Martin Luther King's group, is disrupted, ridiculed, and discredited. So the FBI was out to condemn him. And even when he was pro uh, for getting out of Vietnam, even evangelist Billy Graham criticized him for not supporting American foreign policy and said that his King's statements were an affront to the thousands of loyal Negro troops who are in Vietnam. But we know he was right. He spoke the truth. Eventually, we got out of Vietnam, and we said, oh, we should never do it again. Oh, that we had a man like Martin Luther King now to speak up against American militarism, who would have spoke up about America being in Afghanistan for longer than ever in any other country, 14 years before we officially left, yet we still have thousands of leaders there. Even when the vice president, I read Joe Biden the other day, said that all along his advice has been to the president. He said, as soon as America removes its troops from Afghanistan, it's going to fall into a state of chaos. Whether we keep the, he said, so we should remove our troops, whether we remove our troops now or 10 years in the future, it'll be the same. Oh, that we had a voice to speak for nonviolence, like with Dr. Martin Luther King. Lastly, and and this is the most difficult lesson, I believe. Oh, I was going to mention Martin Luther King's 39 different times went to prison with other marchers. He lived an incarnational life. He lived in the slums with people. He was regularly out among poor people uh, in Chicago, lived in the slums. And went to jail with the rest of the marchers when they went. uh, Again, following after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ. This last lesson, though, that we should learn from Dr. Martin Luther King, is that we all need genuine personal accountability. Early on, because of the wiretapping that was done of Martin Luther King, uh, it was discovered that he had some sexual relationships outside his marriage. When I first read about this, uh, it was through the Pulitzer Prize winning book by David Garros called Bearing the Cross. That was written in 1987. Martin Luther King was a great hero of mine. And when I recognized that this writer had the documentation, access to the original documents that, that this was true, that he had committed adultery on a number of occasions, I was devastated. To hear that my hero, this Christian leader, had done this. And then two years later, his best friend, Ralph Abernathy, corroborated this in his autobiography. He said all the members of the staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference believed that this was wrong and immoral, but he said it was an area of particu- a difficult area of vulnerability for Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't mean to excuse it in any way, but Garrow in his book also wrote about this phenomena that many uh, upper-class white women were throwing themselves upon him as a strong black leader for some reason. But this cannot excuse the behavior. And I'm reminded of King David. We've been blessed by his life so much that he did right. And yet... He fell for Bathsheba, had an inappropriate relationship with her, and then sent her husband, basically probably was a good friend of his, to the front lines to die. And yet we're still able to learn from his life. And I pray that we can learn from Dr. Martin Luther King's as well. One of the things in the movie Selma that's striking is they show a wonderful scene where Ralph Abernathy is comforting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, when he's kind of lost hope. And he quotes him some Bible verses and um, encourages him. But yet, Ralph Abernathy knew of his weakness. Some, there's uh, some evidence to believe that even the night before he was assassinated, that a woman, not his wife, had been in his room. And it makes me ask the question, if he was such a good friend, how, when they traveled, could he let him have his own room? Couldn't he have given him better accountability? to keep from staining his own reputation and, more importantly, that of Jesus Christ. And I think we must learn from both the victories and the failures of great leaders because all great leaders, all of us, have victories and failures. We're all sinners. Someone recently in our men's group said, hey, if 95% of men struggle with lust and purity of thought, How come we're not talking about this and holding each other accountable every time that we meet? That's a very good question. We should all be aware of what are the areas of vulnerability that we have that could ruin our reputation and the reputation of Christ, and what are we doing about it? Are those areas, are you talking about them in your accountability groups? Or are we foolishly, like Ralph Abernethy did to Martin Luther King, setting him up for failure? And Dr. Martin Luther King allowing himself to be set up for failure by not taking into account his weaknesses. So let us learn from the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, that we would not let our Christianity be limited to the walls of our church, that it would spill over into the public domain, that it would not just be part of our life, but that it would be all of our life. I pray that we would offer our lives to God even to the point of being willing to die for Him, for His cause, for the kingdom of God. Oh, that we'd be Communicate like Jesus and the prophets that we would speak out against injustice and stand for truth even when it's unpopular. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Injustice anywhere threatens justice everywhere. In all of our lives, we are witnesses to injustice. In middle school, in high school, in our workplace. Will we speak out against it in love because of our love for those around us? and a desire for justice, and to see God's kingdom come, or will we be silent? Sometime in our life, there'll be an opportunity for us to step up. I pray that we're faithful, that we would do that, we would stand for justice, and we would be like Martin Luther King as he followed Jesus' example. That we'd know that life is a spiritual battle, that we'd learn to persevere if a governments against us, if our friends against us, if people of our race are against us, no matter who's against us, that we would be willing to stand strong in the truth of Christ and that we'd not give up. No matter if it's a great task like the civil rights movement or it's a small matter that God has given us responsibility for, that we'd take it seriously and persevere and not give up, that we'd be inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King's perseverance. And lastly, that God would give us wisdom to understand our vulnerabilities and protect ourselves from them, that we would not stain the name of Christ. That that would happen in our accountability groups, in our meetings, especially between good friends. That it would happen between good friends what didn't happen between Ralph Abernathy and Dr. Martin Luther King, that we would see our vulnerabilities, talk about them, and help protect one another from them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing life. We see the incredible gifts that you gave Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how in so many ways he stewarded them well. Lord, we also seek to learn from his failures and not allow them to be ours. But Lord, we need your help. We thank you for raising him up. Help us to follow the ways that he followed you, Lord God, and brought you glory. Lord, our desire is that you would be lifted up, your kingdom would come, that we would live Christ-like lives that bring honor and glory to you. We thank you for the examples that you've given us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.